Forces of anarchy, wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. And welcome to The Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Carson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to The Politics Guys, a weekly roundup of what's been happening in American politics and why it matters. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. In this week's episode, Jay and I discuss the Republican budget plan. President Obama called it stingy and short-sighted, but really, it's essentially meaningless. We explain why. President Obama's support for mandatory voting, which he said would completely change the political map in the United States, except it wouldn't. Starbucks' attempt to get us to talk about race over our grande low-fat lattes. What Mitch McConnell's got against the Environmental Protection Agency. The rise and fall of men's health cover model and soon-to-be former Congressman Aaron Schock and the Obama-Magnum-PI connection. Our lead story this week is the budget. Both the House and the Senate the proposed budgets, the House Republican budget, which has some pretty big cuts, uh, over $5.5 trillion over 10 years. The Senate was a little less um, cutty, that can't be a word, uh, <laughs> only $4.3 trillion over 10 years. Still, that's uh, uh, a lot of money. Uh, and... Uh, President Obama responded, as you might expect President Obama to respond to Republican budgets. He called them uh, stingy, was one of the words, certainly. And that's, a, that's, wow, that's, that's, that's lower octane uh, than I would have expected, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, you know, certainly, he would, he would say that they are stingy. It, uh, in fact, he, uh, he mentioned this in his uh, talk at the City Club of Cleveland, your fair city. I know, he was here, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't go. I did have a a special correspondent uh, who made it there, but uh, I was not able to make it. So, yeah, and it's uh, it's it's been a story that's uh, uh, gotten a lot of coverage this week. Although, really, uh, uh, congressional budgets are are weird things. They don't actually mean much of anything. Um, that's true, but but uh, for our listeners, explain where you're going with that. Yeah, well, essentially, how it works is that uh, the president uh, proposes a budget, and President Obama proposed his in. Uh, February of this year, and then uh, the Congress takes a look and basically throws the president's budget out the window and sometimes proposes its own budget resolution. Now, this isn't actually a law, so the president doesn't have to sign it. It's just basically something the House and the Senate get together and say, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we spent money on this stuff or not? Correct. so it's not really that the budget actually isn't a budget like we'd think of it. It's just sort of like, wouldn't this be a good idea? Right. And basically, they sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. Uh, and uh, this time, the Republicans got together in both the House and the Senate, and they proposed these budgets. And they're just sort of basic, I guess you could say, policy outlines. And it seems like the Republicans want less government. Well, that's that's good to hear. <laughs> 
my from my standpoint. And I'll I'll uh, you know I will admit that I have not read the the resolutions or really gone through it in any depth. Um, but yeah, I think you're right that these are essentially more policy statements uh, than they are actual legislation. Uh, or anything that's actually going to happen. So it, it sounds to me it's sort of everyone's staking out their, their claims, and uh, then they'll negotiate from there. And, and then, as we've talked about before, the actual budget process uh, will, will continue uh, uh, pursuant to the uh, regular order now, I guess. Uh, uh, at least that, that's been the plan. So. Yeah, one of the uh, uh, one of the people quoted in, in one of the articles that I read on this, who's a former staffer on both the House and Senate Budget Committee, said that the bottom line is the budget resolution is essentially meaningless. It's theater of the absurd, which sounded like a lot of Congress action. That's like our me. show. You know, but there you go. Absolutely, uh, there is one thing that matters with this is that. Once there is a budget resolution in place, which should happen fairly shortly, is that the House and the Senate can use a procedure called budget reconciliation. Uh, And Mm -hmm. this gets very arcane, and so we won't go into it. But essentially what it does is on certain matters, it allows the Senate to uh, pass measures that are filibuster proof. So you only need 50 votes, 51 votes, sorry, instead of 60 votes to get certain matters through. The Democrats did this with parts of Obamacare, for instance. So it can be useful at times. Uh, Technically, it's only supposed to be for matters that relate to reducing the deficit, but Congress finds ways around that sort of thing. Of course. So it's mostly meaningless, but not entirely meaningless. And, of course, it highlights the differences between – Uh, President Obama and the GOP Congress, basically Obama, more government, Congress, less government, I think. All right. And also they also tend to be very vague and full of uh, what you could call interesting accounting measures where they'll just say, and here's when we'll stop, we'll uh, cut spending by $2 trillion. Well, as I, as I remember, yeah, former uh, past past uh, uh, these kinds of, of resolutions uh, <clears throat> had this sort of funny accounting of of costs saved from wars we don't fight. Yes, um, and and it's it's that sort of uh, uh, bizarre thing of I'm going to save a whole lot of money um, <laughs> by by not getting into car accidents right. next year or something like that. It's uh, yeah, very, very fuzzy. The other, the, the fun stuff I've seen on this, of course, is the, the Democrats have said that this will, the Republican, uh, budget proposals will lead to, uh, violence against women and so forth. Um, which I'm not seeing that. I haven't made that connection yet. Um, <laughs> but right. you might be able to comment on that, whether, uh, and it, it's, it's much, much like the, uh, you know the famous joke about the New York Times reporting the end of the world. Um, you know where they say you know world ends, uh, women and minorities hardest hit. Well, and, uh, I, so yeah, I, well, and I, I think this I think this gets to a fundamental difference between you know how Republicans and Democrats see the the, the role of government, and certainly you can make the argument that by making uh, major cuts or even proposing major cuts to programs, uh, would those go through? A lot of those programs, of course do tend to disproportionately benefit those in our society who are the uh, most disadvantaged, and a lot of times those are uh, women and minorities. So, yeah, it's a, is it a bit of a stretch? Sure, but I think oh there's something gosh. to you're, it, actually. Gosh, what would you like cookies with that Kool-Aid? Um, 
no, I, <laughs> um, uh, my my sense uh, is though that um, this is this is a good thing, isn't it? Don't you think? I mean, if we're going to have two parties, shouldn't we have two parties that say, "Hey, here we have a here where we here's where our philosophical differences lie." And uh, let's work out what we can and fight out what we can't. Absolutely. I think it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. I think it's good for the Democrats to get some opposition from a party that clings to a discredited strategy of trickle-down economics. Absolutely. <laughs> it, keeps, it keeps the good party honest, and I think that's right. very important. So anyway, uh, our next story has to do with uh, another comment, actually, that President Obama made in Cleveland. It has to do with uh, voting. And you he wanted to say something on this. sorts of goofy stuff here. And, and, you know, my theme for this week uh, was going to be just sort of goofy stuff that, that people said. I mean, it was sort of a week of really bad ideas. Uh, and I'm not sure whether it's just like a cabin fever thing of, of people having been cooped up too long or, or maybe some people got away for spring break and – um, you know, had a couple a couple cocktails and, and then came up with this, but but Obama uh, came out in favor, saying, "Look, boy, it would be sure sure would be great if we had mandatory voting uh, in the United States." Um, and to be clear, he said it would be transformative. Right, I'd, I'd imagine. I mean, uh, uh, most most totalitarian uh, measures are. Uh, but, well, and and here's the thing, though. I mean. According to President Obama, I'm going to disagree with President Obama, so you'll like this maybe. Okay. But he said if everybody voted, then it would completely change the political map in this country, which is sort of a common Democratic talking point. Republicans tend to believe it too, but actually it's not really true. Oh, well, geez, you just stole my, you stole my line, man. You just, but go ahead. No, because you're the, because you're the professor and and you can, you can speak with, with more, uh, 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 credibility on, on these kind of statistics and stuff. Sure. So go ahead. Well, uh, there's been a lot of research on, uh, on voting and differences between voters and non-voters, and the conventional wisdom is that non-voters tend to be far more Democratic identifiers than voters, and that's true to a limited extent. It turns out, actually, that non-voters are only a little bit more Democratic than voters. And Political scientists who've run simulations on what would happen if everybody voted, they essentially find that it would change the outcomes of almost no elections, in part because there aren't really these big differences between voters and non-voters that both Republicans and Democrats assume there are. And also, and maybe even more importantly, most races just aren't that close. And so it wouldn't make that much of a difference. So President Obama's wrong in saying that it's transformative and it would change the political map in this country, it probably would result in the net of a couple more seats here and there for Democrats. Right. I would even say it might it might come out of wash or it might be an advantage to Republicans in some areas. Uh, because something that when you talk about things like mandatory voting – you're you're not just I mean it is transformative uh, in that it's changing the the playing field. Uh, for example, you might have some voters who are not particularly concerned about certain issues, but are concerned about others uh, who will who will be driven to the polls, and and issues that weren't in play before now suddenly are. Uh, I, I think there was was often a sense of look if people aren't voting that's essentially a, a vote for the status quo that they feel hey things are going okay 
uh, I'm not going to get out there. Or they're making the very mature choice and saying, I don't know what the hell this, this election is even about, and I'm not going to uh, <laughs> weigh in on, uh, with my opinion on it, uh, you know, just like it's, like it's American Idol or something. Right, and I think, uh, that's, I think that's important to point out is that the goal, I think most reasonable people would say that the goal is not just to get people to vote. The goal is to get more uh, involved, engaged voters. To get people informed, which yeah. is which is what we try to do every week. Absolutely, and and, and we're doing we're doing our part, President Obama. Uh, you know, the other piece to this is uh, <laughs> the reason Obama gave for this to make it a, a transformative game changer is, is he would say that would mandatory voting would do more to counteract money elections than anything else. And again, to me, that's sort of a head scratcher because I'm why why would it do that? If anything. I would think it would it would give um, uh, make money more important in elections. Yeah, I, I don't really I don't really agree with the Obama statement there. So you and I can actually agree on this uh, with, without a doubt. And you know this is related to actually something that that happened on a policy uh, front in the state of Oregon, where mm-hmm. uh, they uh, passed a law that automatically registered people to vote, which is different from mandatory voting, but kind of along the same lines. And, right. Uh, uh, Democrats overwhelmingly supported this in the state house, and every single Republican in the state legislature le- legislature voted against it. Yeah, so, as as would I, and when I would say the 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 difference between um, yeah, I, there there's there's two different concerns. Mandatory registration, I think, raises concerns about voter fraud. I think. Oh, that, that you the, know the that, that same old. Same old BS thing. Republican talking point that so much research has demonstrated is just a red herring. Oh, well, you know no, what Republicans are concerned about would you like, is would losing you like to see votes. the records of the of the of the three other people who are registered to vote in my home in 2006. Yeah, you can find a few isolated all with the same cases. Last name, sure. living at my address. Yet we never saw them. You can find um, a few isolated cases, but the fact of the matter is, is the people who are disenfranchised through ridiculous voting requirements far outnumber these cases of voter fraud. And I don't blame the Republicans. I don't blame the Republicans. You know, they're doing the same sort of thing that Democrats in the South did in the 1950s. They want to disenfranchise voters who won't vote for them. Okay, fine, but there's this ridiculous, disingenuous sort of reasoning about voter fraud. It's complete crap. So what, what would you think would be the biggest hurdle to voter registration at this point. What's what's stopping someone from registering to vote? Well, for instance, in a lot of states where there are students, say, who want to register for vote, some states don't allow them to use their student ID. Okay. That would be a hurdle. Well, shouldn't they shouldn't they have an actual address? Well, I mean, if they are at school and that's their that's where they're spending most of their time, it certainly it seems reasonable that they should have the option to either vote where they are there or in their, you know, home district, not both, obviously. Or both, well, which, is what happened, which, is what, which is what happened in Ohio uh, in the last election. Um, but go on. What, what would be another hurdle and a reason for mandatory registration? Well, I think there are, you know, a lot of reasons is that essentially that the harder you make it, the more of a, a barrier you put in people's way, especially people who – are at lower socioeconomic status who don't necessarily have the the time and the freedom and the ability to get out and vote the things that you and I can do a lot more easily. But I mean, 
Right, because I'm I'm thinking those people with the lower socioeconomic status likely wouldn't wouldn't they have more interaction with the government on a day to day, month to month sort of uh, 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 timetable? I'm not sure what you mean by more interaction. I'm I'm saying would would if you're if you're a low socioeconomic status person, wouldn't you be applying for various government benefits that are out there? You 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 might if you were aware of them certainly. I'm, I'm sure. And and how hard is it at that same time to simply sign the form and say, uh, here I am, here's where I live. I'd like to register to vote. Well, I, is I, that an onerous? I'm certainly all in favor of making it easier to vote and you know and providing more opportunities for registration. Absolutely. All right, but let's okay. Stepping aside from the registration issue. When you're talking about mandatory voting, that comes the next question of, well, what happens if you don't? Yeah, and I, I think mandatory voting is a bad idea. Actually. And there is, there is such a thing, of course, to put that in, you also have to put in a system uh, whereby uh, you keep track of who is voting and when. And then you track them down and, and uh, uh, you know, punish them <laughs> for not voting. Uh, and and that to me uh, strikes a, a sort of totalitarianism. That's the sort of thing where uh, you know Saddam Hussein used to claim that he had uh, won ninety nine percent of the electorate, and uh, uh, the Soviet Union, I believe, had uh, mandatory voting, and uh, which which resulted in the um, uh, election of of uh, greats like Joseph Stalin. And and I, w- I would guess that there's probably a similar system in place in North Korea. So well, I think you and I can both agree. Mandatory voting is a bad idea. So while we disagree on the motives of the, of the GOP on this, certainly a big disagreement, uh, mandatory voting just seems like an awful idea to, to both of us. Well, and I, and I think as a practical matter, it's never going to happen. No, I, I agree. Uh, practical matter, uh, both just from, from uh, the reasons you point out that there will be enough resistance, and also I think uh, it would be an unconstitutional First Amendment violation um, uh, to uh, to force someone to vote and, and uh, 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 overly onerous thing to, to have a government enforcing a penalty against someone if they don't. Mm-hmm. But tell you what, speaking of, of dumb ideas, and this is one that has been probably talked to death, um, but but it's just so damn fun. Uh, Starbucks proposal to have sort of national conversations uh, about race um, with your barista. That is a dumb idea. And and it's again such a a where did where did someone come up with this? Uh, they're, they're rolling it out only in certain cities that it would have like racial issues, and I'm I'm sort of disappointed that Cleveland isn't one of them. We had Tamir Rice and all that, so I would think we'd be a prime target. Um, but uh, yeah, the uh, CEO of Starbucks uh, said that he wants to have a, pro- a program where customers come in and talk to uh, their barista about race while they're. They're ordering uh, their their coffee. Um, See, I it, think I I'm going to disagree with you here. I think it's a great idea. Well, you just said it was a terrible idea, but okay, it's go both. Ahead. It's You're flip flopping. I, I I'm taking both sides. It's All right. in one sense, it's a horrible idea. If you actually think that a conversation on race with the person serving you your coffee is uh, going to do anything in terms of race relations, yes. That's a horrible idea. But let's say you're – because Starbucks is doing this uh, in concert with USA Today. Okay. Let's say you are a coffee chain and you are a newspaper, a, a horrible, awful newspaper that just is 
you know, ridiculous. But anyway, let's say you're those two, those two organizations and you'd like to get a whole lot of free publicity. Well, this is a spectacular idea. In other words, uh, USA Today came out with this eight-page circular on race with questions that you can, you know, ask your barista or your barista can ask you about how many, you know, whatever Asian friends you have on Facebook or something like that. I mean, that's great. I'm sure that really increased the traffic to their site. And from a business perspective, I think that's great. It's a smart idea. I, I, you know, I would say this is that I, I think Starbucks, it might be kind of fun and maybe more people showing up just to see if they get asked, asked any uh, goofy questions uh, about race or, or how their, their barista might respond to their good. I mean, my, my conversations at, at Starbucks, uh, and I go there pretty frequently, usually are things like you want room for cream for here or to go. Um, and, uh, I might ask, do you have any more of those sausage muffin things? And that's, that's right. usually the scope of it. I mean, sometimes we also branch into the weather, uh, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, recent sports events, something like that. Um, but, uh, the, the idea that, that you ought to talk about race or politics or anything else with, with someone in, who's serving you coffee uh, or serving you anything is, is again one of these things that sort of there's a there's a, a whiff of totalitarianism there and and what I mean by that and I'm not I'm well, not saying I'm I'm not saying that I'm part of the the tinfoil hat crowd uh, you know that sees sort of a one world government lurking everywhere uh, but what I mean by that is it's it's sort of a a a, a function or a a um, feature of totalitarian systems that even the most mundane, most prosaic uh, transactions or parts of a personal life are political. Well, and again, I think it's important to remember, though, that Starbucks is a private organization. This isn't a government initiative. And so certainly as a privately, you know, as, as, a, as a private organization, they're absolutely free to tell their baristas to talk about whatever. And if people don't like it, they can get their coffee. Oh, oh yeah, else. yes and no, and, and I'm sure you would you would agree if say say for example if the good folks at uh, Chick Fil A uh, asked uh, their their employees to spread the spread the good news about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when someone orders a chicken sandwich. Go for it. Um, you, go for you, it. You I say be, you know you and not object. And I'll uh, go first, somewhere I, else for my chicken. I, I think that would I think that would uh, present some uh, numerous uh, statutory problems. As well as uh, First Amendment problems. Well, I, I, said, I, mean, I disagree. I think it's a business decision. If they want to do that, what's what's stopping them from doing that? I think they have every right to do that. I think it's a dumb idea. Well, because there's only because I mean I'm just saying from an employment law perspective, there's only so much you can force your employees to do. I see what you're saying. You can't compel your employees to yeah to, to preach the gospel speech. or whatever. Yes, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, well, that, in that, that sense, would yeah. be, and and this uh, is is you know sort of comes comes close to that. I would say the Chick Fil A example would be more extreme, um, but it's it's you're you're forcing uh, employees to engage in political speech, which really has nothing to do with uh, their job. Now, it's one thing to to have your employees engage in political speech if you know you're you're someone like um, uh, my uh, my girl Jen. Uh, at the State Department, um, uh, you know, if it is if it is your job as the company spokesman to go out and say things, well, sure. Uh, but if it's your job to make uh, delicious coffee drinks, um, then then no, it would would seem far out of bounds. And the left uh, in uh, Vox, particularly, people expressed concern that 
employees might be uh, upset by comments about race that that, that they don't want to hear. <laughs> so, well, if you ask the question, you can't really. Uh, I think that's a that's a pretty uh, ridiculous claim. Well, no, no, but the 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 point would be that uh, you know, listen, the the person your barista, it's not their choice necessarily to ask the question. It's the boss is telling me I have to ask this question. I don't want to ask it, and now I'm being confronted with uh, a viewpoint that, uh, as you know, there are many sen- very sensitive people these days God, yeah. uh, that uh, shakes their sensibilities. Uh, and uh, may commit various microaggressions against them, and and uh, gosh, who needs that? Uh, and and an employer may be in, by doing that be creating a hostile workplace. Yeah, and and I think one thing I wanted to point out, and related to this, is that this idea of calling this a conversation is ridiculous. It's not a conversation, and I I probably you know support uh How- howard schultz's ideas about race to a certain extent and agree with him but calling a conversation what he wants to do is essentially proselytize yeah, yeah. and if if you're only saying there's only one view that can be admitted or discussed or promoted then that's not a conversation that's advocacy and i think you should just be honest and call it what it is and i'm i'm in favor of a lot of that advocacy but it's not a conversation Right, right. It it is uh, very disingenuous. And if you were to go in and uh, say to the collective baristas there at Starbucks, "Hey, how many of you agree that uh, Michael Brown got uh, got what he deserved and uh, he had it coming?" Let's see a show of hands. Um, my sense is they would they would feel pretty reluctant. Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine. I would despite imagine. despite the you know the various facts that have established that you know hands up you know was was nonsense. Um, so so anyway, yeah, I, I think we can agree that it's it's goofy. Uh, if uh, the CEO of Starbucks wants to talk about race, then he should get his own damn podcast uh, like us. Absolutely. Well, or we, we could have him on because I think that's fine. That too. would be Howard. Yeah, Howard would be a great guest, I'm sure. Well, you know, we we're agreeing on a lot of things here. I think here's one thing that we uh, almost certainly will disagree on, and that's President Obama's war on coal. You've right. heard of this, of course. Right, I'm an, I'm I'm uh, I'm siding with the coal. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll be siding with the, uh, President Obama on this one here. Now, the news on this is that on Thursday, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, sent out a letter to every governor in the U.S., which in which he laid out a uh, very carefully constructed legal argument as to why the state should not comply with the EPA's clean power plan regulations. And these are regulations that essentially put up a uh, uh, CO2 target for every state, and the EPA is supposed to have each state uh, uh, mandate them to come up with a plan, uh, laws to meet these targets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, uh, Mitch McConnell is very much against this because he loves pollution. <laughs> Or maybe he's that just he does. That may, he does. maybe he's just maybe he's just promoting the economic interests of his state over the health of the American public. I don't know. That would maybe be my, more my take, actually. That, that reminds me of a, a uh, satirical uh, Onion piece years ago about Halliburton that they're they're now building plants that only pollute stuff. They don't actually make anything. Uh, they merely merely create sources of pollution. <laughs> Well, you know, certainly you can understand why Mitch McConnell would take the position that he does because coal is big business in Kentucky. 
Well, it's it's big business in in a lot of places uh, in, in Kentucky and Ohio and Pennsylvania uh, and West Virginia. Um, so I, I don't I don't uh, I think it's a perfectly reasonable position to take. Um, well, you Obama, know, interestingly, a lot of someone who you wouldn't expect to have taken it is actually taking it, and that is uh, Lawrence Tribe, who's a, a Harvard Law professor. Uh, some would call him a mentor of President Obama, who a uh, well-known liberal, who accused President Obama and his EPA uh, of uh, burning the Constitution in doing yeah, this. Yeah, and that's that's harsh words. And from and Lawrence, Lawrence Tribe is is um, uh, he was also a defender of, of President Clinton back uh, during the impeachment days, uh, and he he quite literally wrote the book on constitutional law. Uh, I should also point out that he's also a very bitter man because he's long felt that he belongs on the Supreme Court and no one would nominate him. Well, who who hasn't who among us haven't hasn't had that experience? You know, um, (laughs) uh, good point. Good point. um, But but yeah, so that's that's a real surprising thing. And what what tribe is saying essentially really two things. Number one, he's saying that this, there's a federalism question here, the EPA uh, essentially mandating that states change their laws to meet these guidelines. And secondly, that in doing so, the EPA is going beyond its uh, mandate in law that you know, established by Congress. Yeah, and I, I would agree on, on both. And and to some who would see Mitch McConnell's uh, letter as as an act of uh, treason, which again we have, if you're going to say or uh, define the federal government as treason, uh, you know, inappropriate, uh, unlawfully passed, uh, and will severely damage a state's economic uh, prospects. Uh, state governors have have very much a duty to to oppose them. Uh, in in every in every form that they can. I mean, I'm not talking like nullification doctrine type stuff, but mm-hmm. um, no, that's that's really sort of the the point, isn't it? That uh, we have two separate systems, and uh, in many cases, uh, well, I'll, I'll, we can talk about that some other time. I was going to mention the fracking rules, but there there are state stuff now. The EPA uh, emissions rules obviously would be federal uh, situation where they've already occupied the field. But, no, uh, I, I think it would be good to bring in fracking because actually that's uh, that, there was some news on fracking as well uh, this week and that the Obama administration, it was on Friday, they came up with the first federal regulations on that. And as you pointed out, you know, we have two different systems here and the EPA's rules on fracking only apply to federal lands. and the majority, for, for example, Indian lands and federal lands. Yes. Right. Yeah. And the majority of fracking is actually done on private and state-owned land, and that's covered by uh, by state laws. Yep. And so, yeah, so. The, the intent of these new rules is uh, essentially to, uh, to provide something of a template, perhaps, for some states that don't have their own fracking laws. And, uh, I mean, they seem to me to be pretty common-sense things, allowing workers to inspect the uh, integrity of the, the barriers that line the wells for fracking, uh, having enough. publicly di- have public disclosure of the chemicals that are used in the fracking, and having standards on how fracking chemicals can be stored. Uh, that all seems pretty straightforward to me. But right away, the Independent Petroleum Association of America filed a lawsuit. Well, yeah, I think again, the lawsuit is uh, there's got to be some basis to again. Does where does the federal government have find the authority? 
to regulate this. Now, I think they've got a good argument there that because we're only talking about federal lands and these are things that are within their jurisdiction, uh, that they have the the power to do that. I, I haven't seen the lawsuit, so I really can't comment you know, on, on what they're basing that on. But my guess is it's it's sort of a uh, uh, EPA or, or administrative overreach that, uh, you know, the, the rules hadn't gone through the appropriate administrative processes and, and so forth. But And that's uh, and that we've talked about this before. That's very par for the course, uh, even in cases where the administration seeks the input of regulated industries when they're writing regulations, filing lawsuits after they come out is is incredibly standard and it's a good way to slow down the uh, implementation of them and thereby save the regulated industries some money because they don't have to comply as soon with them. Right. And it also, it also upholds uh, uh, parties right to go to court to defend uh, their rights when they think they're being violated. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm okay with this. I mean, let's, let's let it work, uh, work its way through there. Um, but I think the the other piece of this, and you, and you sort of alluded to it, is the Obama's administration it, to want to be seen to be doing something uh, on fracking. Uh, they probably realize that uh, uh, what they can do is is sort of limited, uh, and also they don't want to uh, really sort of bite the hand that is, has uh, fed a lot of the the economic um, uh, recovery, especially in in states like Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Um, but they want to be able to, to be seen as, as doing something. So this is this serves, suits the bill, and uh, like you said, they get a template out there uh, for other yeah, states. And, and I don't know how useful that is really because uh, so many of the states were fracking's big business. The state legislatures have been essentially captured by the energy industries. But uh, uh, you, know, you do make a good point that fracking has been uh, uh, a very important thing in terms of U.S. energy production. Uh, but, you know, the uh, the quality of groundwater and contamination of groundwater is also something that we should be legitimately concerned about. Sure, and and uh, yeah, I have, I have no problem with uh, honest, uh, you know, straightforward regulation, and and uh, let's look at the the real science of this, and and I think uh, think something can be uh, worked out. So, All right. Well, in kind of moving to the I think sort of lighter side of things. Uh, You've heard about uh, Representative Aaron Aaron Schock, yeah? Yes, yes. He's, uh, he's, soon to be former Representative Aaron yes, Schock. Yes, yes. Uh, Representative Aaron Schock, who is uh, going to resign because of all sorts of interesting irregularities. Uh, yeah, and, and we will full disclosure. Uh, he is a, a Republican uh, from the Chicago area of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What a shock! Uh, and, yes, yeah, uh, and, you know, at this point, at this point, though, I think it is it is something interesting to mention. He has not actually been a, accused of any any crime. Uh, there's been uh, questions raised of maybe he violated a uh, congressional ethics rules in uh, use of of private jets, um, but uh, he was sort of very much living the high life, uh, and. Uh, uh, well, you can probably better catalog his sure. his his crimes than I could. But. Yeah, the FBI is uh, currently investigating him now, but there are a number of things. Uh, there are some private flights that he took on donors' planes that where they were uh, maybe not reimbursed for those. Uh, another thing in that he bought a house for, uh, I think it was just under uh, 
two or sorry, around $128,000, sold it to a supporter for just under a million dollars. Wow. Which is a nice little profit. Um, yeah. And uh, another thing that he that was kind of a big deal is that uh, he put in for travel reimbursement for mileage for 170,000 miles of this is of automotive travel. That's yeah. a lot of travel. There's, there's, there's more driving than you'd expect when you're in car. You know, so, the I problem mean, was, though, when they looked at the odometer on the vehicle that he claimed the mileage for, it read 80,000. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's more than double. So <laughs> he was living the high life. He, apparently he had, a, he had a real thing for interior decoration, spent tens of thousands of dollars to decorate his office in the Downton Abbey style, whatever yes. that is. Yeah. He also well, was a, apparently a big, uh, a big fan of uh, fitness. Uh, TMZ called him shockingly hot, and uh, he actually got the cover of Men's Health. Cover of Men's Health a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah for his uh, six-pack abs. So very yeah. impressive, you know. He'll have more time to work on those. But there is one part of this I thought that was not entirely uh, uh, frivolous. And that's uh, one of the things that he's accused of doing is charging more than $20,000 for tickets and festivals, in in fact, taking some of his staffers to some uh, uh, music festivals and billing those as political action committee fundraising events. Yeah. And this is really kind of an interesting, a fun little perk of being a member of Congress. You want to keep up staff morale. You know, I think it's very Uh, important. It's it's tough. The campaign trail is tough, Mike. Well, this is one uh, thing that's... (laughs) You need these little breaks. This is one thing that's not illegal, but is incredibly sleazy. What more and more members of Congress do is they start their own political action committees. And for our listeners, a political action committee basically is an organization that's formed to give money to other campaigns. And so members of Congress will start their own PACs. And you would think, well, if they're going to do this and raise money, they would use that money to give to other members of Congress or potential members of Congress. Not so much. What they use a lot of the money for is what they call fundraising activities. Right. So let's say you have a PAC and your PAC brings in $100,000. Well, maybe you think it'd be great to have a fundraiser in, oh, I don't know, Hawaii. And, and hey, to get everyone more, to Hawaii, more money that way. yeah, including getting yourself to Hawaii, that might cost $50,000 because, of course, you're going to fly business class at least. Right. So that's a nice little way to kind of skirt the congressional ethics laws, get around and have some nice stuff for well, yourself. Well, you know, I, I would say, I, I would say to, to some extent, um, you know, skirting the ethics laws maybe – is or isn't so much the, the, the point to me because this kind of stuff has gone on. And, and I've, as some of our listeners know, I worked in politics for a while and, and still keep touch with a lot of people who do. Um, there is a, a thing of even before, whether you're using it as a, a personal pack for your own campaign or, uh, or, or other leadership pack uh, money, um, there's really no harm to the public. It's, it's sort of, you're just ripping off your own donors. Um, uh, but that that said, there's something that that has always bothered me, and I, this is why I think the Aaron Chuck uh, resignation uh, is really good. It's one of the things that made me happy this week. Uh, in in that, uh, it's it's good for the republic. Uh, in that, you know, as someone uh, who I had worked with, uh, a former speaker of the Ohio House once once said to me uh, in response to people who. Who were sort of lording it over uh, uh, folks uh, that now that they were in office, that 
you know, the only reason they're in the place they are and in the fancy office they are and have all the people uh, uh, treating them with the deference they do is because a whole bunch of farmers who, in many cases, they wouldn't really think to even speak to, uh, bothered to get out of bed uh, and, and go vote first on a Tuesday morning before they went to work. And I think that's something that's that's really important. And this isn't this isn't even a partisan thing, um, but that uh, the idea that look, you're you're a servant of the people, and uh, you're not there to uh, to impress yourself or or others. To decorate um, your house and you know your your office, your office in Downton Abbey and, uh, style, sure. Yeah, no, I think there's there's I mean there's something to be said also that. You know, you want your offices to look nice, but uh, but they do typically. You know, I mean, you know, sure. you you need to you know be able to command respect, but uh, at, at the same time, um, you know, I think the founding fathers would very much have have uh, revolted against the idea of uh, looking to be above the uh, the people who elected you. Uh, so I think it's I think it's good that that he's gone, and I'm glad he stepped down. Um, because I think that's that's an important precedent too. That that you know, and there may be criminal stuff coming down the pike. We don't know yet. Uh, but even if it is just uh, just bad optics, as they say, uh, I think it's it's good for the republic that uh, he steps down and says, "No, I'm not going to." You know, this this way I acted is is not consistent with that of a, a public servant. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, I we can agree again that it's a good thing that he will no longer be in Congress, without a doubt. So yeah. I, I know we're, we're running a little short on time, but there's one story I just had to briefly mention, uh, right. very much on the lighter side. And it's, I'm going to note that I'm giving up some some valuable, really good stories for next week, though, too. Yeah, but we shoot. will definitely get but those in next week. Good. Absolutely. But this is very important, uh, vital to the, the future of our republic, maybe. Uh, that uh, there's a story that uh, came out of Politico that uh, the Obamas may be buying the Magnum P.I. house in Hawaii. How cool is that? Is he going to get the uh, get the uh, red uh, Ferrari too? You know, you, you was it a Ferrari? Ferrari. I think it's it was a Ferrari okay. to go along with that. Yeah. So uh, I think that would be, uh, you know, it's great to be an ex-president, certainly. And, of course, President Obama has ties to Hawaii and supposedly a uh, – a frequent I've, I've golf heard he was partner. even born there, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah a frequent golf <laughs> partner of his has bought the Magnum P.I. house, and the, the talk is is that it may be actually the Obamas, uh, one of their main residences, if not their main residence, once uh, President Obama's done being President Obama. Yeah. And that would be a, a fairly cool thing. Made me almost want to go back and watch uh, an episode of Magnum P.I. just to remind myself what the, the place looked like, but I'm not quite that dedicated, I don't think. Well, I was going to say, I wish I could have like pulled up the theme music really quick here to have that in the background. Oh, there'll certainly, certainly be a Magnum P.I. link on the show notes. No question about yeah. it. Yeah. No question. And you know, you know what? I, I, my hope, and this is, again, sort of for the uh, – the general good of the republic uh, is that for the future, should he do this and move in there, uh, there would still be known in the popular imagination as the Magnum P.I. house and uh, not the President Obama house. I agree. I think that's very I think there's important. Some, there's something healthy about that. Yes. Uh, some so, things are sacred. And in yeah. cheesy 80s TV shows, I think that's one of them. So... Well, that's that's probably about it. Although I do want to kind of tease something for next week, and that is the federal government may be in trouble. Uh, with oh no! The U.S. District Court uh, down in Texas on the immigration order. 
they may have uh, violated the injunction and may have uh, misled the judge. Uh, there's going to be an order coming down next week, and we can talk about it then. Um, but that'll be good. And uh, uh, also next week, I'll mention Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, camp um, uh, proposal and uh, the huge fund deficit that she sees for adults in the United States. So Sounds interesting. All right. Well, we will definitely try to get that in next week. Uh, but for this week, that's uh, about it, actually. So thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. We'll be back next Sunday with another look at the week in American politics. We hope you'll join us.